Welcome to the Circle Stories podcast. In this podcast, we aim to explore the stories within, between, and around the various circles we inhabit in our lives. Anyway, my guest uh, this morning is Mark Molinex. Uh, Mark is from my Circle of Mercy circle, and I'm happy to talk to him this morning. Uh, Mark, how are you? I'm well. Good to see you. Good to good see to you. you. I usually start with a, a check-in. Um, I was wondering if, if you'd be willing to do that with me. Um, if you have a uh, uh, something that's life-giving and something that's uh, maybe not not so much, um, you'd be willing to share with us? Uh, i start with the life-giving. Um, in all of the uh, busyness, I'm able to see my granddaughter who lives in the same zip code as I do. Fairly regularly, so on Saturday morning and also on Sunday morning, I was able to see her. And uh, she's uh, 28 months young and uh, just a joy to be around. Uh, oh, gosh, the negative is, uh, you know, the, the fallout from COVID with the educational institutions. There's a lot of uncertainty about how we will... Uh, actually manage what we need to do, and that is we need to start online. And maybe after Labor Day, we can go to in-class, in-person. But uh, but I'm teaching a first-year seminar, and to have first-year students start meeting online for their, um, it's, uh, it's going to be tough, very tough. That's a challenge. I know you had to... Um... You had to start working with that at the end of last semester, at the end of yeah. last year, right? I did, yeah, and I don't think I did that well. Um, I kind of require the rough and tumble of a classroom, and that's what feeds me. This will assume that the students will be at least on campus or be able to drive to campus after Labor Day. Um, yes, a lot depends on the uh, tracking of this disease. If it gets worse, that may not happen. So we have to be pretty nimble to go online the entire semester. Right. So, yeah. What percentage of your kids come from out of Madison County? Hmm. I would say that probably 50% are Madison, Buncombe counties, Yancey counties. So we, we, we're not known that much as a local place, but uh, we do have a lot of local students. Okay. But, but we get a lot of international students, especially sports uh, mm -hmm. athletes. Uh, a lot of people from Florida. And they've come in already, or they're planning to come in and be on campus and still do online learning. Would that be fair to say, uh, the ones from out of it, state? Yeah, that's, that's going to be, uh, I, I think that, uh, I don't know if the students who live way out of campus, way off, uh, out of state would be able to have that option for the entire semester, mm -hmm. but they, they, could, they could. So if they request it, we may have to serve them up with that with that. For for my non uh, circle listeners, Mark, you're a professor of religious studies. What's the That's what's your a, title? Yeah, uh, I call it the academic study of religion. I'm a professor of religion at Mars Hill University, okay, in Madison County, North, Madison County, North Carolina. Right, right, okay. Yeah, this is going to be a tough time for small schools, I think, to figure out how to navigate bringing mm -hmm. students to have the campus experience while at the same time providing a safe environment. I know uh, the school where Karma and I went, um, I think when I was there, we had 600 students and that included non-traditional uh, commuting students. So it was very tiny. And I, I haven't heard um, 
what they're going to do this year. But um, I know that uh, Goshen College, another college that I went to for a semester or for a year, I guess, um, is planning on in-person learning at the college. And Mm -hmm. I guess they'll see how it goes, too, in terms of testing. And I I think they have a dorm or at least a a couple of floors set aside uh, for students that test positive and need to quarantine. Yes. Yeah. But at the point yeah, we have to have all kinds of contingencies. Yeah. Just yeah. wow. The, the logistics and the planning yeah. uh, for this is, is, uh, I guess if you're into that kind of thing, it's a great uh, well, exercise, but if you're not, boy, it's a nightmare. Isn't it? Yeah. Fortunately we have uh, a president and provost and a team of uh, people there who I would call it the, the A plus team. They, uh, they know what's what to do. They're not shirking from their responsibilities. And I'm very, very proud of, of this leadership team. Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. And they, they're decisive and they try and decide as early as they can. I'm guessing. Yeah. Uh, some of the stories I'm hearing about, uh, about some of the colleges is that it changes, if not daily, it changes weekly. Yeah. And uh, that's just, you can't plan. There's no way to plan yeah. for that. So it, it sounds like your your team is um, up to the task, at least for, for a yeah. while. Um, I have very much confidence in them. Yes. Yeah, if, they, if they can't do it, nobody can. <laughs> well, there you go. We wanted to talk this morning. Um, I know you're a, a big Tolkien fan. Would that be safe to say? That'd be quite safe to say, yes. I, I am a fan, but uh, far from what they would call a, a Tolkienologist. I know a little bit about him but I don't know a lot. Can you tell me a little bit about what you know about his background? Well, he started writing uh, stories when he was in World War World War One. Now, he was and in the trenches, right? He, was, he fought. That's, that's, that's in, correct, yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah he, he, he saw the worst of it. But he was schooled and, and educated in the uh, medieval English tradition, and he wanted to write... Uh, I guess to kind of be the kind of Beowulf for our day, or the kind of the, the person who wrote Beowulf for our day, to bring the imaginative process to stories, so that people today can read these stories and and through them figure out who they are and what they need to be doing. He's, uh, I would say that he is, and this is a claim that many will contest, but I would say that of the writers in the past two or three hundred years he would be the top person for bringing the imagination into the reading process and actually bringing uh healing maybe through the through his writing it was not necessarily his intent but that's what happens yeah now that's interesting that you bring up um his inspirations because when you talk about Tolkien, you think about it's easy to think about all the people that that he inspired to write and all yeah. the things that he has has brought yeah. to the fantasy world but yeah. you know beowulf was what um 17th century i mean oh i think it's much older than that older yes, than that older. even yeah so yeah. so fantasy has been around from the beginning i would imagine in our stories as an element to our stories yeah I, and i was going to say uh, and getting ready for this i would i would i'm prepared to say that it is the imaginative and fantasy life of humans that makes us distinct from everyone else. And it is like uh, our stories that come to inhabit us or kind of like the software that tells us who we are 
and what we are to do, what we can do, what we should not do. And, and Tolkien uh, never would be one to be kind of like a preacher. You must do this, you must do that, or you must read my stories this way and not that way. But he provides this rich tapestry of stories, which I can go to at any time and find myself in action. I can find myself in the book. Yeah. And, and it's different every time. It's not like, Oh, in 2001, I saw myself this way, and that's that's it forever. It's now, it's it's every time I'm there. There's there's a new way of, of experiencing the world. And so, if I were to read him today, I would see uh, Black Lives Matter mm. as in in terms of the 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 mental scape, mental landscape going on. The lens in which we read the fantasy, even fantasy that we've read, yes numerous times before is going to is going to be colored by our current events and i, I think yeah. that was definitely true for him as well so after world war one um he is that when he got his education then i believe he got his education at, at oxford he started pinning the the hobbit i think in the late 30s and started when he realized that the hobbit needed some sequels he started uh framing out the Lord of the Rings, um, I believe, during and after World War II, the 50s, and, and comes to a kind of uh, uh, publishable state in the 60s. And then he and went of course, back. Did he go back at, after that and, and write The Cimmerillion then? Or? Yeah, The Cimmerillion so that was... The, was uh, that's the prequel yeah. to every to all of them. It is a kind of prequel, and it's, a, it's got the most beautiful creation story I've ever seen. If if nobody if anybody wants to go back and look at that, it's it's just one of the most beautiful creation stories. I have um, well, okay, it was it was a good twenty twenty five years ago. I tried I've tried to start it a couple times, and I just haven't yeah. been able to. I th- I think it would be um, advantageous for me to have somebody teach it to me rather than just try and dive in because it's not an easy read by any means. Well, uh, <laughs> Professor Corey C O R E Y Olson. Corey okay. Olson is a uh, person to look up, and uh, uh, he's called the Tolkien Professor, and okay. he has regular classes that he puts on YouTube and, okay. uh, and podcast. Yeah, so heavily, I, heavily, heavily recommended. I did notice there's several Tolkien podcasts out there where yeah. they'll discuss yeah. it from different points of view, and yeah. they'll read chapters and discuss. So I may dig into those a, a bit more too. You. Um, yeah. You engaged some younger folk uh, this past spring in The Hobbit, is that right? Yes, two uh, young members of our uh, Circle of Mercy, Jonathan and Lily. Um, We would uh, gather once a week and read a chapter of The Hobbit aloud to each other, and and I'd ask them to uh, be prepared to uh, read something aloud that they had prepared. Okay. And and one, one of the... Young ones uh, just loved the poetry and would put it to impromptu music every time. Just it was really, just, just, so, it was just wonderful. Yeah. So uh, uh, he or she learned Elvish and was able to compose uh, some music. Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well it, it, in the Hobbit, uh, you may see some Elvish, but it's uh, the poems that we see in English. Is she did oh, okay. that? Okay. And uh, so, and uh, it, it was absolutely wonderful. Uh, but to see the power of the Hobbit gripping young people mm-hmm. uh, is is just a is just this is amazing to me. I loved it. 
And we, I have a, I've developed a, oh gosh, a 15 page syllabus for them for reading the Lord of the Rings. And when it's safe to meet again, we'll, we'll do Lord of the Rings. Oh, that sounds, that sounds great. And uh, if anybody's got to, wants to start that with us, let me know. I'll be glad to uh, include you in. I am very tempted. So it'll, it'll be in-person meeting? I hope so. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, once a week or? Yeah, it'd be once a week. When, you know, the only thing I can think of now is to, is not read it together once a week, but ask people to read it or listen to it. And there's a wonderful online version. Uh, through YouTube uh, oh, okay. to, to listen to it. And then we talk about just the issues that it brings up or we recreate a, a scene and, uh, and then, we, then we read that together, but maybe not the entire chapter. Some of the chapters are an hour and a half long. So. Right, right. And, and I, I wish I had been able to listen or read to it um, at their age. I don't think I first listened to it until I was in my late 20s. Yeah, um, yeah. My sister was a voracious reader. Um, Karma, of course, read it in her teens. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, all of it. But I, I never uh, did that. I played Dungeons and Dragons, which mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. was was a very much um, fantasy role playing, mm-hmm. pseudo inspired game, bringing in a lot of those elements and a lot of the creatures and a lot of the. Um, mm-hmm the time kind of surrounding it, but, um, but, but Carl, did you not also, after you stopped playing Dungeons and Dragons, uh, in the next few hours, you would sort of recreate or reimagine those times when you're away from the computer or away from the game. Did I think it not I, affect the, affect yeah, your I think your did. Yeah. 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 So, and, and you know, they call them campaigns, but th- these were basically, yeah. um, stories, that we would play in our minds and play together. And um, the element of chance, of course, was the, the dice, you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. But yeah, I did. And, and when I did read the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit or listen to him, I guess yeah. uh, it's more accurate. I don't think I've read the Lord of the Rings yet. I've read the Hobbit a couple of times, um, but when I did, yeah, I, the mythic creatures and the general genre of that kind of fantasy was familiar to me. So I yeah. took that it, and, if I can editorialize, uh, it's unfortunate that uh, people see the word fantasy and say, this is secondary, not important. I like to use the word almost with a capital letter, imaginary, or almost in Disneyland language, imagineering. Mm. Because uh, I see the Tolkien genre, uh, maybe even Dungeons and Dragons, but almost in a line with, uh, with our sacred texts around mm. the world, whether it's Buddhist, Taoist, Christian, Jewish. And that is the texts themselves are very creative and they provoke in us the imagination. And then we can kind of magnetize other people with the same orientation that we get. Think, think uh, your favorite preacher magnetizing or, or you know, helping other people think the same kind of things. And that's the power of these stories mm-hmm. is that every time you go, go back to them, you know, you may have heard 10 sermons on, on Zacchaeus, uh, but there'll be 10 different sermons, right. completely different. And that's the power of the, of this so-called fantasy is that they're not to be seen as allegory where it means this, it, may, it can't mean that it, it's like, you're not locked into one interpretation, but you go back to it as this, never-ending source of 
how to live for today. These stories about how how we are to be in in a time of COVID or in a time of Black Lives Matter or in a time of uh, whatever you want to say. You know, whatever world, you want to feel. World like War II in. for for Chopin. It was World War II. Yes. I yeah, I, I I'll take you up on that um, rebranding of uh, of imagining because uh, I'm guessing fantasy just became it is a publishing term. Um, a way yeah. to pigeonhole um, a text. I mean, the, the same can be said for romantic fiction or, I mean, yeah. it's, it, the story is what's important and how you react to it is, mm -hmm. is what's lasting, not, not the label yeah. that, that the publishing companies tend to put on it. So yeah, I'll, I'll, but, I'll go with you on that. Yeah. But these stories, you know, nobody asks really, really any, more, any much more, is it true? And this is the power of the imagination. Mm. Uh, my students sort of have to have to do a double take when I say that all religion is imagination. You cannot prove it. You cannot put it in a test tube or measure it. So all religion is imagination. And there's lots of different kinds of religion. Just like there's lots of different kinds of imagination. And you and I are part of a congregation that imagines an active divinity or an active congregation. There, it's not just something that you contemplate, but there's this active part to it. And that's part of the whole imagination process too. You, you hear these stories. Now, what do we do? You know, how do we put this into effect? How do we bring this kingdom of God down home to us right now? And uh, the utter richness of these stories help us to do that. And um, we get people, uh, various people who interpret these texts for us. And uh, we can get kind of magnetized by that too. I mean, you can get magnetized by all kinds of stories, whether it's, you know, a KKK uh, white supremacy story, you can get magnetized by a, a social justice, black lives matter story. And so there's this sense that we, you know, we discern the spirit of the story about what it can actually do. But mm. stories are, excuse me for preaching, but stories are so powerful <laughs> in the, uh, Preaching and, to the choir here. That's, yeah, and, and how we basically approach life. Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely, and how how we engage those stories in our in our yeah. time and in our own lives from our own experience. It's so yeah. powerful. Yeah, and uh, just like we suspend our belief when going into a movie theater, we kind of suspend belief. But what happens when we suspend belief is we then can reimagine what life is to be. Yeah, Sorry. what we'd like it to be. Or yeah. what it will be, or it depends yeah. on the storyteller, I guess. Yeah, remember when the movie Avatar came out uh, eight or nine years ago, and mm -hmm. people went back again and again and again and again because they said that is so enriching and power empowering. They said, mm. "What if? What if?" It gave people a lot of hope. Yeah. So, all right. And that was definitely an imaginative uh, story. Uh, yeah. yeah. And really, really fun graphics. Yeah. And by the way, they did. The, that's probably the best religion in any movie I've ever seen. Oh, wow. Yeah. We'll have to have another talk about that one. That's, uh, <laughs> Tolkien was a, was he raised Catholic or did he convert later? Or do you remember? Uh, he was, uh, I think, a lifelong Catholic. Mm -hmm. And he does build that worldview into his stories, uh, kind of consciously, but uh, he's not there like C.S. Lewis to to convert us. Mm. He's there to provide the story and then let people take the story for whatever it is. C.S. Lewis had much more of a, 
uh, a plan for his stories that Tolkien said, nope, that's not what I'm doing. I'm just going to be writing the stories. You cannot allegorize it as a, uh, as the good and evil of World War II. It, it is uh, the stories stand by themselves, stand alone, and right. uh, your interaction with them is, imp- is important. But you don't try to categorize it for someone else. Mm. So, you know, you and I may have grown up in a religion that, uh, that did kind of allegorize everything of Christianity. And by saying it's a kind of prescription, you know, these spiritual laws, you have broken the law and now you're no longer holy and you got a holy, angry God. And by the way, your sin is original. There's nothing you can do about it. So that's a story too. Mm -hmm. That is an imaginative story, Mm -hmm. but is an allegorical canning, uh, one dimensional canning at that of a particular historical genre of interpreting the story. But if we let the, the if we let the literature, the, the whatever it's whether it's Tolkien or or Jesus or Lao Tzu, we, if we just let them speak without too much interpretation, they're going to be saying a lot. I, I heard an interesting discussion about the uh, Elrond's Council in the first book of Lord of the Rings. And the significance of all of these important people from all of the all of the groups getting together and arguing about what we're going to do about this about this ring. And then, you know, silence falling and not Bilbo, Uh, Frodo, Frodo standing up and saying, I will go, but I do not know the way. And that being such a significant moment in the book, but also something that I wonder if a lot of us can identify with. Do you um, engage the younger folk in where you see yourself in the story for The Hobbit? Is that a, is that a, even a, a an exercise that's helpful or important? Or I I could you know kinda I try not to, but kinda it comes out like when we're dealing in The Hobbit with Smog the dragon, mm-hmm. right? And I I just taught a section on dragons in my course Angels and Demons. Okay, and there's there's a, a kind of way in which you can you can get dragonized by you, you hoard, you hoard, you hoard, you hoard, you hoard. And you know, every little piece of what you own. And that's about all, you know, mm. and, uh, and it sort of circumscribes your life. And if anything goes wrong with that, you just get so bent out of shape. And that's, I said, that's a powerful way to do things because, uh, you know, we can live our lives, exactly like a dragon or we can choose not to. So, you know, I, I try not to be too teachy or preachy in this, but that was too rich to, to, to leave on the table. Right. Right. Let's take a break to change things up a bit. This episode, we'll hear from Liz and Elizabeth. I first heard this duo at a five, three, one night, and I was blown away by one, their musicianship and two, their vocal harmonies. This piece called platonic third Gives you a lot of the first and just a taste of the second. Enjoy.
Gollum early on in, oh, yes. in the Lord of the Rings and such a such a powerful interesting creature how does he fit in what was Tolkien's I mean how do we how do we square him in the Tolkien I've, I would like to write a biography of this guy <laughs> I, I think he is so fascinating to me he's the classic addict uh, as in AA or NA, I think that he is that he is allowed something to come over him, and he doesn't know how to get out of it. Mm. Uh, that that first precept of AA, yeah, yeah. And, and so he yeah, he's out of he he cannot control, and so he does any everything that he can uh, to get a fix. Mm-hmm. But he, he, you know, and when you can't, there's this, your, your life is just at a, at a standstill. But what Tolkien does in this, in this, these three books is that he shows the cumulative effect that the more you, uh, the more that Gollum used the one ring, the, the more decrepit he got, the more, the weaker he got, the, uh, the, the everything bad started happening to him, mm. uh, although he could not recognize it. And so what Tolkien suggests with this character of Gollum, which I've taken as a kind of life lesson for me, is be careful what you get allied with, because the more you use it, the more it will start using you. And it, it is a cumulative, you know, frog in the water, kind of, frog in the boiling water kind of, of metaphor. It, it doesn't seem so bad that first time or the first, you know, first, when you first start out on some path, but the longer you go down this path that has no good end, you get sucked in and sucked in and uh, you're basically, you know, prostituted out to the ring or to that, to that thing that has your hold of you. And the Gollum is a wonderful example of how this happens. You write his biography. I'd I'd love someone to write. um, (laughs) I'd love to write, have someone write uh, Gollum um, in NA, you know, 
Gollum, yeah. a recovered or in recovery Gollum. That, yeah. Yeah. that would yeah. be, that would yeah. be a, yeah. yeah, he's, you're right. Every, everything in his life revolves around the ring. Mm -hmm. Do you get a sense of growth from him over the three books in terms of his interaction with, with Frodo and, uh, no, only a, more of a sophistication and hiding his true feelings and playing along to get his ultimate goal. Yeah. So uh, I think in book two, uh, he become he distrib he he has a split personality. One mm. is Slinker and one is Stinker. And Slinker is the better of the two, if I remember correctly. Who and they have these arguments. It's like they have a split personality. They have these arguments, right? And Slinker says, "Oh, well, nice Hobbit, nice Hobbit." But, and then Stinker comes in. Oh, he he stole it from us. And uh, so I think this is the effect of the, of the addiction, the effect of yeah. the ring, uh, that we we become more and more sophisticated in trying to get what we want. And to do that, we have to hide our true selves. And the longer we hide our true selves, uh, the more it disappears. Mm -hmm. And his his final act in in the book is to go over the edge yeah. into the volcano. Well, let's don't do a spoiler alert. Oh, but, sorry, yeah. sorry, sorry. Kids aren't good. <laughs> yeah, okay. uh, yeah. But but see, the ring was acting on Frodo at the same time because he had made a momentous decision when he's about to throw the ring in. Mm -hmm. And that ring effect on him caused that very decision. Right. So the longer you have that addiction or the ring and your power under your that's power that has its power of you, the less free will you have. Right. And I think that's the, the the teaching that comes out for me is that you know be careful what you get you know bought into because it can have the effect of buying you, and the longer you are bought in the less free will you have. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's scary to me. So scary to, to, to get so bought in that you lose your free will. Yeah. Every addict needs a Sam. Yeah. Um, Frodo could not have done what he did without Sam. Um, yeah. Sam is his, Sam carries him. Yeah, literally. Physically and yeah. I mean, it's just yeah. uh, uh, the level, the deep level of love and friendship there is yeah. something that I don't know where Tolkien drew from, but it's just such a powerful thing. The, the power of friendship. Yeah. Mary and Pippin are almost comic relief. Uh, <laughs> at, at least in the movies. I don't remember the books yeah. so much, them being um, yeah. such cads, but they, um, I think they provide the levity to mm -hmm. the Hobbit uh, culture events. Yeah. But yeah, in the, in the books, I don't know if it comes out in the movies, but in the books, they, they do come into their own as uh, maturing young ones. They, and, they uh, do. I, yeah. I think, yeah. When they, when, when the fellowship basically breaks apart and yeah. there's different paths, um, I think uh, meeting the ants, I think had a big, big <laughs> impact on them. Frustrating, maybe, as they uh, yeah. <laughs> fell asleep. I, I went to an ear, nose, and throat doctor and said, you know, and, and said, oh, you're an ent. <laughs> Do you talk slowly? <laughs> and and uh, apparently he wasn't a Tolkien fan because he didn't get the joke. And so I. Speaking of the ents and maybe the old forest, uh, those two parts of the book changed my life, changed my thinking about trees. Mm. And uh, so. The, the power of trees, which 
uh, and to see them as alive and, and more than ways than just stationary. But uh, that's come out uh, in scientific research in the last five years that trees are so connected mm-hmm. to each other. Trees that are the same, but trees that are different. And the communication that goes on underground out of sight is tremendous. And uh, a wonderful novel to read won the Pulitzer Prize a couple of years ago called The Overstory by an author named Powers, I think Gary Powers. No, that was the U2 person, but yeah, but, um, <laughs> but, yeah, but Powers um, is a fantastic read. It'll break your heart, but it's a fantastic read about the power of, of these trees. Mm-hmm. So. Do, do you think Tolkien had an environmental bent? Yes. Um, okay. it, it came about, I think, that he would call himself a kind of hobbit himself. And that is to, to live low, not be a Luddite, but live low on the technology tree, not to have too many uh, entangling alliances with civilization or mechanic, mechanization, industrialization. And he says life is going to be better for people when they're like that. And then supreme way of expressing that was with the, with the ants uh, and the old, and the old forest that these, mm. these trees are, are, uh, there's something there that we're just not seeing. Mm. And uh, he, he was bringing, he was bringing this out. Yeah. So the, the Shire, you would say then is his idyllic societal goal. I mean, it, if you think about the Shire, it, it's very monoculture. Um, yeah. 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 It you is. Know, there's no diversity. Um, the worst thing you can do is, is, um, you know, there's no crime basically. I mean, uh, the Shire always seemed like such a sheltered, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's days travel from anything else. You, you got the feeling, exactly. that, you know, and it's protected and it's an enclave and it's, does Tolkien ever talk about what first made Bilbo leave the Shire other than the dwarves coming to his house and saying, we need a thief. I mean, was he was he perfectly happy, um, or is it genetic? Is it? Um... Yeah. Well, you know, Bilbo had two parents. Uh, of course, uh, his father was more of the stay-at-home mm. kind of guy, and his mother was uh, uh, was the adventurous type. And so, Bilbo had this kind of war and within him for all his life up to the unexpected party first chapter of the hobbit Mm -hmm. uh he had this war about do i stay or do i go do i you know do i look off to the mountains or do i keep my sights lower and uh so finally when the when the uh all those dwarves come at to his door and and invite him or tell him you're going with us as our Mm -hmm. burglar uh it responded to a story within him that had never been tickled Mm. And that story, and so he had to live that story out. He had to find out where does this road take me? The road goes on forever on, or, you know, be careful as you go out your door. You never know where the road will take you. Right. Um, kind of thing. So, so he, he had an itch there uh, that needed scratching. And, and so I think Tolkien gave permission to, for those of us with untold stories to say, oh, let's, let's, Let's see where this road takes Let's us. Let's take a chance and get out of my comfort yeah. zone and go. Yeah. I wonder if that's, uh, do we know if that's autobiographical? Was his mother the uh, adventurous? Do we know? That? I, I don't, don't know. know. No. I just don't know. That's yeah. interesting. That's... I remember the scene. I don't know. Again, I'm totally taking from the movies and that's awful of me. 
but there's a scene after the dwarves leave for the night. You know, they've cleaned up everything, including exactly. everything he's, you know, his larder is empty now, which yeah. for a hobbit is, is absolutely terrifying and, and devastating. But they've cleaned up after themselves, and he's there looking at the wreck of his house. And you get the feeling that he's like, nothing left here for me. You know, I'd have to rebuild here anyway, so I might as well go on on this adventure. And yeah. it, it just seems like such a turning point for him. Yeah. Um, to, but, uh, to but I I think this is a great for young people to read and say, yeah, uh, I got uh, untold stories, and if I don't get these stories aired out, then uh, I'll never find the the peace. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, by the way, it's going to be hard, and it's going to be uh, yeah. And I don't want to be dragons say, on. Yeah, I don't want to say dangerous for, for our kids, but uh, I, you know, it could be dangerous. Uh, uh, well, dangerous could be a metaphor. Danger could be kind of a metaphor. Uh, mm. You know, unplanned for situations, uh, unasked for interruptions. There you go. Uh, setbacks, and and if, as Joseph Campbell tried to demonstrate with the hero's story, the hero's the one that says, "I am going to." leave security, leave safety, and go find that which is tickling me. And, and, and this is exactly how I decide what I'm going to preach on or write about. You know, I'm mm-hmm. doing this book on the Tao Te Ching, and, and I said, I have read this for 40 years. It still intrigues me. I've got to go in and find out what it is that this is all about for me. And so, you know, you've got to get these untold stories. As, as Walt Whitman says, we contain multitudes, and, and that's nothing to medicate against. If we don't get these stories out before we die, they die with us. You're, you're addressing that tickle. You're scratching that itch that you've had yeah, for, exactly. for a long time. But the same thing, so the same thing happens again in Elrond's council with, with Bilbo, I mean, with Frodo. I mean, he, yeah. he's like, let's do this. You know, everybody else is arguing how we're going to do it. So when the fellowship is created and there's nine. Correct. Do you anticipate the kids reacting to to the nine in terms of where am I going to be? Where where do I see myself? Hmm. Don't know about the the, the nine. I, m- I imagine that since Sam and Frodo are from chapter one, and you see them, mm-hmm. uh, I think that 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 most of us will be reading for the first time. Uh, riding on the backs of Sam or or Frodo, right, right, uh, and, and seeing ourselves in that direction. Uh, but you know, I've read this thing twenty twenty five times, and uh, I've identified with everybody from Sauron, yeah. the the evil genius, to to Gandalf, to uh, to Gollum. So yeah. So so Mark, you're telling me you have some dark magic in you, and uh, I have some dark to... I have some dark places. Let's put it that way. <laughs> And you've been tempted to use it to create an army. Uh, yeah, lear- yeah, learning to, how to control your magic. Yes. Sure. Yeah. Um, Tolkien's, you know, evil and good dichotomy. Is there room for a third way in there? Has Has anybody addressed that? Have you thought about? That? Yeah. Um, it is mostly a dualistic way of of understanding. I mean, one of the most famous quotes by Tolkien is when he's talking with Frodo. I think in book one, uh, Lord of the Rings, and and uh, you know Frodo's complaining. I wish these times had never happened to me. And mm. Gandalf says, "Well, you're right. We we all do. But our choice is not that they come to us. But what are we going to do now?" Mm-hmm. And that can be the third way of, of finding uh, a creative path through the tension, through the adverse conditions. And 
So there may be multiple good ways of doing it or multiple bad ways. And so, yes, there are, even for our day, there are huge challenges that many of us might label evil or nefarious. But, you know, we are, if we are like Frodo or Samwise, we are small pieces of the puzzle. And yet these small pieces are quite powerful. Mm-hmm. And so the, I think this, the object of Tolkien is to say, no, we don't have to go get our guns and blast people out of the sky in a dualistic fight between good and evil, but we can inch our way along. We can inchworm our way forward. And, uh, you know, it's sort of like what the book of First Corinthians says, you know, we can be these small agents uh, that do pretty powerful things. So I don't think he's, he's being a strong dualistic person, although I think that was his main worldview. But he was, I think, providing a kind of third way for us mm-hmm. to say, okay, let's make our choice for, the, for what we think is good. Now let's figure out with our friends how we get there. Right. And I think that's exactly what uh, Circle of Mercy is trying to do. Uh, we, uh, we, we are pretty much united in what we don't like. And yet, I think we have various ideas on how to, to bring the kingdom forward, uh, inchworming our, our way forward. Right. So, and just to fight something is, is probably going to make it stronger. Hmm. In fact, usually when you, when you fight something, you have given it more oxygen, more strength more uh, press time right. and, that's, and right. that's not what that's not what you want Tolkien and spirituality mm-hmm. you say he doesn't he doesn't want us to think of of the books think of them in terms of political machinations of, of his time the Nazis and the yeah. Urukai and the he, he hated people to allegorize it he hated okay. that so he hated that did he also not want us to look deep into the spiritual aspects of, of the, the book, or was he okay with that, do you think? I think he was mainly interested in writing something that he was comfortable with, with that resonated with his worldview. He populated with unforgettable characters mm. and brought a huge range and a immensely deep depth to it. And then he just said, this is my gift to the world. Uh, it's a kind of, you, you may want to call it fantasy. You may want to call it imagination literature. When you read this, things will happen to you. And I think that's what he's, you know, he, he just wanted things to happen to the reader. I don't think he had a prescription about how it should be read, uh, except not as allegory. I don't think he, he wanted it to, to be as, um, he's not going to tell us how to read it. You know, the way we read our sacred text today are, are not how they are probably read uh, in, in some in many instances, how they were, not, they were not read that way at their foundings. I know another thing I wanted to ask and, and talk about was there are purely, if not evil, uh, malevolent races and creatures in the Lord of the Rings. True. But in terms of, you know, there's good elves and bad elves. Mm-hmm. There's good dwarves and bad dwarves. There's good humans and bad humans. There's, there's no good the orcs. orcs. There's the orcs, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's no good orcs. There's no good goblins. Yeah. <laughs> there's, yeah. you know, it, was that something that is just part of his story, and that it was just a wonderful thing he he made in the story, or, or was that part of his worldview as well? Do you think? Maybe part of his worldview. Uh, I have recently read the Cimmerillion for the first time, and mm. uh, it, it is a backstory to a lot of these so-called races. And to me, I think he was setting us up that. It, and, and I think what they do is they make his stories more believable mm. because I think that as we read said, yeah, those orcs remind me of 
X or Y or Z today. Uh, yeah, uh, that wizard reminds me. So, but he's not trying to to bring about a um, a uniform interpretation. Mm-hmm. I think he just wants to be suggestive about what each each one can mean. Yeah, I, I have some trouble with uh, with the mass extermination of works and and mm. the disregard of life. Do they they not have an image of some creator in them? Uh, right. So, uh, and uh, so yeah, and also today, just blanch at the way he uses the word dark and black. Mm. But uh, you know, when you read it with uh, Black Lives Matter lenses mm-hmm. on, it it just is it's appalling sometimes. However, you know, I uh, have to see him as a product of his age. Yep. He can't, he can't, he could not anticipate 2020. So I forget your original question. Heck, I, but, I uh, couldn't have anticipated 2020. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's, Let alone him. Uh, it's only half over. Yeah. yeah. And he would have encountered diversity, maybe, maybe not in, in fighting the wars. I'm not sure there was a lot of diversity yeah. in the trenches coming yeah, from. Probably. Probably yeah. not. Yeah, and not not much color diversity, I would think. Right. Yeah, religious right. diversity, yes. Uh, ethnic diversity, yes, but nothing. I don't think color. But uh, but he but one thing he does in his books is he uses only the words that were around centuries ago, and so he's using old words. He does not coin anything new. He's and so the word black, you know, does have that historic meaning, and he right. uses that. It's just it just you know. Grates on my ears and my eyes mm. when I see it. The way he uses it, and he uses it exclusively in in evil context. Yeah, right, that? right. Yeah. So yeah. you go into the spider's lair. You go into the the caves of yeah. Or yeah. His, his heart, his heart is black. Today it's unfortunate, but I will still say that uh, if we can excuse those, uh, we have a treat of a of a, a literature awaiting us when we open up uh, Lord of the Rings. Yeah, just a treat. Do you um, do you like Bjorn? I always kind of got a kick out of his. Uh, oh, so, and the and the Hobbit. Yeah, he's sort of yeah, a the, uh, he's sort of a minor character and a and a kind of a failed wizard. You get you get the, but he's also such a, a refreshing. Um, you know, he talks to all the animals. The animals are yeah, yeah. You know, I did the did the kids like Bjorn or? Yeah, they like they like this uh, shape shifting. Mm-hmm. Uh, they like that he had this uh, power to. Uh, be somewhere very very quickly, mm-hmm. and uh, and he plays a he plays a major battle in the in the Battle of Five Armies. So he That's plays true. a major part part That's there. True. Yeah, uh, yeah. But he's uh, he could be much more well developed. I mean, it's a very short book, The Hobbit. Yeah, uh, com- compared to his later writings. Uh, so Bjorn, I think if we if The Hobbit had been a second or third writing adventure, then Bjorn probably would have gotten much more more use. Uh, Today he'd probably be a uh, a good candidate for a spinoff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a spinoff book. <laughs> well, Amazon is doing a spinoff. Have you heard? Oh, this? really? A one billion dollar billion with a B. Uh, a one billion dollar uh, story of the Second Age. The Cimmerillion is First Age, right? And some Second. The Lord of the Rings is third age. So we're going to get brand new characters, brand new stories. But they're put, they're pouring a billion dollars into this. And it's coming out on Amazon, I think, next year in a serial wow. fashion. Okay. Yeah, the the, uh, the Tolkien world is um, breathing heavy right now on this one. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, and does the Simulion only address the first age or does it? Uh, I 
believe it may set up the second age. Uh, I didn't get, I didn't, first of all, Cimmerillion is very hard the first time. I mean, I was reading it while listening to the audiobook at the same time. Yeah, I it was, can imagine it's, that. It's hard, it's hard to get. Yeah. Uh, so many names. I believe it's, it's mostly a setup for the races, for the, for the way to explain why evil is happening in the world, mm. to explain uh, what the good forces are. And then uh, pretty much by the second age, it's, it's, you know, it's over with. And that's when the rings are created. Uh, let's see. I forget exactly when the rings were created. It may have been uh, the beginning of the first age. I mean, the, excuse me, the beginning of the third age. Oh, okay. But uh, my timeline's there. I could be heavily corrected on this, I'm sure. Um, but I'm sure there's somebody who's done timelines and and uh, yeah, family charts and race charts. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, family, yeah. Family yeah, trees. You can, and, you can easily find those online. Uh, so, yes. Yeah, entire dissertations have been written about Tolkien. I wonder yeah. if he's one of the most prolific subjects of literary. Yeah, but uh, I think that this professor I mentioned, Corey Olson, has been very instrumental in getting Tolkien more mainstream. So maybe 15 years ago, a course on Tolkien literature would have been very strange in an English department. But now I think it's uh, English professors who say, oh, yes, this is valuable literature. It's, it's not small f fantasy it is something really important hmm. yeah i might have taken that class if i had room in my schedule yeah. but now i can because you said they're all on youtube and it's, yeah. it's so accessible these days is there anything else you want to talk about in the tolkien realm or no i just no i just wanted to emphasize the power of stories and uh how they pretty much affect us they open us up to what we can do cannot do so one reason why I think I remain a circle of mercy person is that the the way that we interpret our text is so elastic mm. and it's not predetermined and not predefined. Uh, there's no liberal way that we are saying we must do it this way or else you can can never proclaim here again. But it, it reminds me of what Tolkien himself would have wanted people to read, you know, provide the rich text for people. Give them a chance to read it and and then just see where it takes them. There, you don't have to do any, you must do this, or you, it means only that and not this. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't work that way. And so I, I find the circle of mercy and my reading of Tolkien to be one of, a, of the same cloth. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of overlap there in terms of maybe not content, but in terms of in the way that we process it. Mm-hmm. If you could sit down for lunch with with Mr. Tolkien, have you thought about a couple of things that you would start with, uh, or would you just sit and listen to him? <laughs> I think I think I want to sit and listen, watch him light his pipe. Sure. Uh, ask, uh, would you do anything different today? Uh, ask him that. But what, what what might you do differently? How might your story have changed? Or yeah, yeah. yeah. Would you have given as much emphasis? Or not so much emphasis, you know. Would you have uh, enhanced Bjorn more? Mm. Or uh, yeah. So I think it'd, it'd be something like that. It would not be, uh, you know. Th- th- I don't want to go into what ifs with him, but it's just like, what if you had a chance to redo something? How would you think about mm-hmm. doing it? Mm-hmm. How does that look? How does how does your story look today? How yeah. does your story? Hey, hey, Mr. Tolkien, how does your story hold up today? Well, actually, it holds up very well today. I, I cannot recommend it enough to people. I, I would have to agree. It's, yeah. I think it's one of those that's going to be taught for a long, long time. I think so, too. 
Thank you, Mark, for joining me. It's It's been a pleasure. We'll do this again, I'm sure. It's been a lovely hour with you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Please check out the website, circlestories.org, for show notes and archived episodes. While you're there, you can leave a comment, browse archived episodes, subscribe, and review. Break music for this episode provided with permission by Liz and Elizabeth. Find links to follow them on social media in the show notes. Show music, Will the Circle Be Unbroken? Music by Charles H. Gabriel. Arranged by Randa Kirschbaum. Performed by Jennifer Wilson. C.S. Lewis said... The next best thing to being wise oneself is to live in a circle of those who are.